to another episode of the Student Talk Security Podcast Series. My name is Cullen Gehagen. I'm a sophomore studying political science and Russian at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm an undergraduate fellow at the Notre Dame International Security Center. Joining us today is Captain Benjamin Ordowin. In 2004, at the age of 17, he enlisted in the Army as a cavalry scout. A few months after arriving at his first unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, his unit deployed to Louisiana to support local authorities days after Hurricane Katrina made landfall. In 2006, he was in Iraq's Dayala province with 573 Cavalry Squadron of the 82nd Airborne Division as part of the surge. While in Iraq, he applied to the United States Military Academy, was accepted, and commissioned in 2012 as a Cavalry Officer. His first assignment was in the 25th Infantry Division at Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, where he served as a Scout Platoon Leader and Troop Executive Officer. In 2016, he submitted a special operations civil affairs packet, was accepted, and after a year of training in Russian language school at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, he became a civil affairs officer. He was assigned to the 92nd Civil Affairs Battalion, which is regionally aligned to Europe. As a civil affairs team commander, he led multiple teams while deployed in Poland, Serbia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. He is now in his second year of a Master of Arts in Philosophy at the University of Michigan. Following his studies, he will instruct philosophy at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Captain Nordway, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about civil affairs. Uh, thanks for having me, Colin. Excited to be here. Uh, as I said before, a little trepidation about being on this podcast, given the heavy hitters that you have, but I think uh, providing kind of a tactical perspective or a bottom perspective could be an interesting take on this podcast. So thank you again. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, it's a perspective we often don't get at the University of Notre Dame, and I think you'll have very valuable commentary for the podcast. Uh, if you don't mind, my first question is if you could please describe what civil affairs is and what is their guiding mission? Yes, so civil affairs or CA for short as I'll probably talk about it from here on out is a branch in the US Army just like really any other infantry, uh, armor, adjutant general branch. Uh, within the US Army, just kind of laying out that there are a variety of civil affairs organizations and if any of them are listening, if I don't mention them, I'll hear about it. So there are nine reserve component civil affairs brigades uh, and one active duty civil affairs battalion that supports the conventional army, I should say. And then one um, special operations active duty brigade, which is the 95th civil affairs brigade, which is what I was in. And that's out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. It's also worth mentioning Marine Corps has reserve component civil affairs. Um, and I'll kind of look up a little bit to explain or highlight why civil affairs is an important um, organization or branch in supporting strategic uh, policy and goals. So the Biden administration's interim national security strategic guidance states that the use of military force should be of last resort, not the first. Diplomacy, development, and economic statecraft should be the leading instruments of American foreign policy. So here's where I think CA is well suited in its purpose and in its application to meet the intent of the strategic guidance. And I think it'll be highlighted a little bit more and talk about the mission. So like the official or doctrinal role of civil affairs is to engage and leverage the civil component of the operational environment while enhancing, enabling, or providing governance information collection against each of the operational variables, um, which you might have covered in ROTC, you know, political, military, economic, social, information, infrastructure, physical environment, and time. Essentially, it's everything. Uh, inherently calls for information collectors grounded in understanding the dynamics of the civil populations government institutions and civil society organizations in the context of history, geography, and available resources. Now, 
I think all of that's minimally informative, possibly sleep inducing. So I'll provide, I think, more tactical approach uh, in, in you know, answering this question. Um, and I'd like to do so if I can by comparing my time in the cavalry as enlisted soldier and as a commissioned officer to civil affairs to help make the case that civil affairs does what I just said it does, which is meet the interim strategic security guidance. So to me, civil affairs was a fairly smooth transition from my time in the cavalry uh, as an enlisted soldier and as a commissioned officer. Um, so in the cavalry, our primary mission is to be the eyes and the ears for a supported commander. And we often did this with a lot of fancy equipment, um, usually at a distance from some concealed vantage point, the goal being not to be seen while looking at other things, um, whether in a vehicle or under some poncho, wherever mosquitoes and you know red ants congregated. So our purpose was to report enemy activity, generally speaking, ideally without being detected so that a commander could develop or alter a course of action. So similar to that, civil affairs serves as a unique set of eyes and ears for a variety of audiences, ranging from you know, US embassy country teams to combatant commanders. But the big difference between the cavalry and CA as I see it is that in CA, our focus is not so much a military adversary, at least not directly. Instead, CA focuses on identifying and addressing threats within civil society, whether they be in the form of ineffective government, degraded infrastructure, population grievances, criminal threats, et cetera. Um, so in addition to working with special forces or Green Berets, psychological operations forces, um, our civil affairs units often work alongside professionals in the Department of State, USAID, and uh, non-government organizations, both domestic and, and in the host nation to address these population, or address these threats and build upon the existing strengths of the local populations. Um, I can go into some more detail. Uh, for instance, like the Calvary CA has a small footprint, um, which might be appealing if you like working in small teams down the road. CA teams uh, I led, for example, consisted of four people, sometimes less. Um, unlike the Calvary, we typically don't employ fancy equipment such as long range optics, uh, but instead we purposely planted ourselves directly in the local population, meeting people where they're at. So that was a big to small and somewhat long-winded um, answer to a very short question, but hope it was informative. No, thank you so much for that. Uh, I've heard civil affairs mentioned as, um, the, you know, military diplomats of the army. Uh, and I want to know, you know, in addition to the eyes and ears approach you had previously mentioned, uh, how else does civil affairs fit into the army's general mission? Yeah, so the army's mission, broadly speaking, as you'll find it defined, um, you know, deploy, fight, win our nation's wars, uh, which, no surprise, most often take place on land um, and increasingly among the population um, of whatever country we happen to be in. So I think civil affairs supports this broad mission by, in my, in my view, ideally helping address and mitigate uh, the root causes of instability, which might escalate to warfare, but should conflict occur, uh, I think civil affairs is our military's force of choice for returning uh, an affected area and its population and institutions back to a stable equilibrium in alignment with our national interests and those of our allies. Uh, I'm building on that. Uh, in what ways does civil affairs uh, rebuild uh, trust with local populations? And you know, why is it important for the US to interact with said local populations? And you know, why, why interact at all? I'll start with the first. I think um, to even build trust, much less rebuild it, you have to be invested in the population. And 
I can think of at the tactical level anyway, of no other way of demonstrating that than by being present in the population. We would call that persistent engagement, purposeful engagement. Uh, what that really just means is there's someone there, maybe not all the time, but there's someone there who is aware of the grievances, the issues in that population, and is in a means to either identify local solutions or to bring together resources from their own government, municipality level, all the way up to the national level in our government and other NGOs to meet those needs. Um, and the reason we, I guess the second part of the question, we, we need to be involved, invested and aware of the population um, of whatever country we're talking about or region is that over half of the world's population is currently in urban areas and it's only becoming uh, you know, a greater percentage. You know, for obvious reasons, urban areas are the focal points for government institutions, essential services, and often the ground zero for social movements. So at best, you know, a, a local population can be a base of support for our interests and our allies' interests, or at worst, that of our adversary. And it is imperative that we understand what might or is actively pushing or pulling a civil population one way or the other. And like I said before, you cannot understand the push-pull factors or threats or support the resiliencies inherent in that population if you don't interact with it. Uh, and that means getting out of your vehicle, getting out of your, you know, your observation post to reference the Calvary again, and truly being on the streets um, and meeting people where they're at, as I said earlier. And if we don't get involved in these populations in a way that helps meet their needs while addressing ours, then we should just expect that our adversaries will and probably with less of, um, you know, charitable intent in mind. I see. Uh, on that note, is it possible to quantify or quantifiably measure the success of the civil affairs operations as they've occurred uh, in, you know, the last two decades? Well, uh, again, I can't speak about the last two decades, um, but I would say the first part of your question is routinely asked of civil affairs. Um, and I think it reflects when that question is asked, um, probably a disproportionate focus on counterterrorism, which some say is a slow or a quick burn operation, right? Uh, or a focus where we want immediate effects. We want a person or a group taken off of the battlefield. This is euphemism usually for killing them or imprisoning them. Um, and we, we want to be able to report to our satisfaction kind of uh, short-term measures of performance. Um, as we focus and have shifted our military and government's um, eyes toward a more great power competition um, perspective, which is perhaps less direct conflict, certainly less counterterrorism focus, although that hasn't gone away. Um, it's more about influence as far as I see it and developing the conditions to support our allies should uh, conflict arise and ideally you know, minimizing the preconditions to ever have to kind of move right on that spectrum from peace to war, broadly speaking. So back to, is it possible to quantify the measure the success of civil affairs? Anything is possible, but I think it's made more probable if you know what to look for, you have a sufficiently long enough time horizon, which means you are patient, and you have an enduring plan. I should say that because civil affairs, uh, at least the organization I was in, tend to deploy new teams every six months. So as has been said of, of Afghanistan, we did not stay there for 20 years is one you know, remark that 
actually the, the uh, special investigator of Afghanistan, if I recall, said that we were there for 21 year increments. Well, the same, we, we, if that's true, we wouldn't want the same approach to be in the way we deploy our civil affairs organizations. We wanna have overlap, we wanna have enduring goals just because we rotate out every six months. Uh, and we do, we expect to have um, kind of an enduring plan. So with those preconditions in mind, I still admit that it is often more challenging to quantifiably measure the effects of civil affairs. And that's because by virtue of being civil affairs, we work with people and not things. And um, we typically do so through local partners. So everything is very attenuated. Um, much of our work is influence or tactical soft power in support of strategic goals, though. Um, so for example, when my team and I deployed to Bosnia-Herzegovina in support of USMC Sarajevo, the overarching focus for the embassy um, was Bosnia-Herzegovina's accession into the European Union. So was that country an EU member by the time I left? No, it still is not. But I do believe we nudge the needle by engaging uh, you know, disaffected populations and finding common ground at the village and town level while on the streets to develop greater support for our nation's efforts and goals in Bosnia-Herzegovina. You just have to be patient, be willing to continue to pursue that. And I think there was some demonstrated success along the way. Um, I could go with maybe a different take, a different geographic take as well. So moving from the Balkans to the Baltics, um, when it comes to quantifiably measuring you know, the effects of civil affairs units, I can at least talk about a measure of performance. So if we shift from the Balkans to the Balkans, you get a slightly different look at what civil affairs does at the tactical level to support US and allied interests. If you remember in 2014, Russia illegally annexed Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. So seven years later, Russia continues to provoke its Baltic neighbors, former Soviet satellites turned NATO allies, much to Russia's chagrin. Uh, Russia seeks to cause instability, all the while testing NATO resolve. And I should say EU resolve as well. In the Baltic, civil affairs teams are focused on identifying civil networks and supporting resistance capabilities. If you think of the French resistance, that's kind of what we're talking about. To help ensure that any Russian attempt at occupation would be delayed, costly, and would buy time and space for a NATO response. So in this case, it may be slightly easier to quantify the effects of civil affairs, at least in terms of measures of performance. For example, number of personnel trained to do X or Y on the home front, um, or an increase in the number of citizens enrolled in some community organization. Um, you know, you could measure that. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think it is. It's possible, and it's made probable if, with, with patience included in the mix. What you mentioned great power conflict as the primary interest for you know, U.S. Uh, military-speaking foreign policy, uh, and I was curious uh, if you predicted that civil affairs would continue to play a vital role in future U.S. conflicts, uh, either between uh, great powers potentially, or uh, in smaller, more localized conflict. So if I understand the question, it, you know, in the era of great power competition, as some are calling it, will civil affairs continue to be a player in that arena? Um, I think for, for the reason I mentioned earlier with urbanization, um, if we are a population-centric organization that is civil affairs, whether you're reserved you know, conventional and you're supporting uh, conventional military or your special operations, you're still dealing with people um, and, you know, the institutions that they rely on in the countries they're in. Um, we have seen, I mean, I served in Iraq. I, I don't have a lot of experience in Afghanistan, but um, populations are 
unnecessary, whether, whether, whether we want them to be or not, if we're engaged in a military operation, populations are inherently going to, you know, support one side or the other at, you know, maybe they'll be neutral, but they'll still be there and they have to be considered. And that's where civil affairs comes, comes in. Anticipating how a military operation will affect a population for, for better or worse, anticipating or predicting or identifying rather how an adversary is mobilizing a population by uh, exploiting, you know, real or perceived grievances. Um, and on a positive note, you know, identifying those those good faith actors in that population who are sympathetic um, to our cause, to their ideally a shared cause, um, and could be relied upon at the right time and place to, to achieve you know, some, some partnered uh, aim. So I, I don't see right now another force outside of you know, First Special Forces Command, which you know, psychological operations, uh, Green Brace, Known as special forces and civil affairs as as achieving you know that kind of interaction with the population. Um, so I think our role will only increase. I should say our, I hope our engagement increases. Um, that does not mean that I hope <laughs> that the conditions for war necessitate uh, our engagement. I mean we should be engaged and we are engaged throughout uh, many of the countries we're in in times of peace. And the goal is to remain as such, as far as I see. I see. Do, do you see civil affairs, especially in low conflict areas like the Baltics, uh, where there aren't hot wars, uh, at, at least haven't been any hot wars in, in recent memory, um, do you see a lot of overlap between civil affairs and other US organizations like the State Department when it comes to interacting with local populations? I know another example in, in the military is uh, foreign area officers will also straddle the line between, uh, you know, the diplomatic and, and military spheres. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, within an embassy, I think you have your attaches and your foreign area officers, uh, which sometimes both. Um, and they do have kind of a military lens on diplomacy. Um, and we do interact with them. They're kind of our um, kind of first go-to when we, if we happen to be working in an embassy environment. Um, but to answer the question about meeting, I think if you ask about meeting the needs of the population or addressing kind of in a, in a peacetime environment, um, the needs of the population, well, I'd say our first aim is to meet the needs of the US national security strategy which oftentimes does involve the population. Um, and in that case, though there haven't been any hot wars uh, in recent memory in the Baltics, not far from the Baltics, uh, certainly not far from their minds is what happened in Crimea, for example. Um, so even though it's peacetime, we don't have to look too far on the map south to see that that can quickly change overnight. And as far as I understand it, one of the avenues which um, enabled kind of a rapid occupation of the Crimean Peninsula was there were existing grievances perceived or real within certain populations um, on that chunk of land. 
and there is some concern that there are um, certain enclaves in different countries that um, have perceived or uh, you know legitimate grievances which could be exploited in the other areas I mentioned as well. So again, you have to be engaged with the population to, to know if those are really like gaining momentum or if it's just some, you know, when it, 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 it flares up during political seasons um, and it goes away. And, you know, if there's, ideally, if there is, uh, to get back to your question about maintaining the peace, if there is a grievance that you can address, especially in a way that brings together local resources, um, then if you can minimize that, that's like the varsity level thing. Because, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention, I think it's worth a lot more than a pound. What ways have you seen civil affairs address grievances in the local population? Um, I guess it, in general, and I wouldn't just uh, just focus this, this answer on grievances, because um, like I said, we also want to focus on what that local community uh, population we're talking about, what strengths it has that you could share across a region or, um, or at least embolden within that community to make it more resilient so that these threats I talked about um, within the population, whether it's disinformation, dissatisfaction with government, you know, decrepit buildings that are relied upon for you know, schooling or medical, that those are addressed, um, that, is, that is important. And I guess I could give a, an example of what a mission might look like and how we would do it. So you, first start by just showing up. I know that sounds uh, cliche, but it's it's essential to be on the ground. And that's where civil affairs kind of, uh, you know, kind of has a niche focus on that um, within First Special Forces Command. So generally we'll start out um, in most uh, municipalities by talking with the political leaders just to see what their take is on what's going on in their community to kind of understand their grievances or their desires um, sometimes their demands, sometimes it's their dreams too, uh, and what they envision for their community. And that is to say, we put all that information aside and we just keep it in our back pocket because, you know, you have to get multiple perspectives on what's going on in the community. And then a lot of times we'll talk to um, activists or uh, non-governmental organizations that are in that area. Um, and we balance a lot of the information off of what the embassy, um, what their embassy's take is on, um, on that community. And then we'll try to, if we can identify a military, uh, you know, a grievance or a resiliency that is aligned with a military objective, after all, we are in the military. And that's something we go back to the community and sit down with them kind of in a working group with multiple stakeholders, whether it's, you know, the activist NGO, it could be a priest, even uh, a school teacher, um, the mayor. And we would say, hey, here's something that we thought about. We've identified some resources. Are you aware of these? Are you not? And generally we'll develop a local solution, kind of a worker bee, uh, bring everyone in and we can. And you have a side benefit of kind of showing the community that, hey, you have a lot of the resources already. It's just, are you realizing the synergy, to use an overused word, that can come from, um, you know, having a shared purpose and setting aside oftentimes your, your uh, you know, the grievances you have with your neighbor across across the way, uh, whether it's a political or, or uh, you know, historical grievance. Um, yeah, it, it sounds generic, but it, it works. And it's truly, uh, you 
you know, value added, I think, to the community. Um, and it's very fulfilling to work in a community to identify an issue or, or a solution um, to that issue and then see it go off in your window of, of uh, your deployment. That is rare though. It, it is very rewarding when it happens, but it's rewarding as well to see four or five teams later down the road achieve something that you, you know, you and your team had kind of envisioned. Um, so that's kind of a rough take on a civil affairs mission, I would say. I see. Uh, and I was curious about your studies and I was hoping you could possibly elaborate on your current work at the University of Michigan. I can. Uh, I'm glad you asked because I am uh, interested in expanding the audience for this work that I've been doing. Um, so over the last 16 months, and I should, should mention under the sponsorship of First Special Forces Command, uh, and with the support of many selfless uh, philosophy and psychology professors, I developed uh, a moral decision-making process for special operations organizations, though I think it could expand to really anyone in the military, but that's the organization kind of I belong to. So my work is in response to what I and many others in the ethics domain consider our inadequacies in our current ethics education and training. Um, and I will promise I will relate this back to national security. So let me provide some strategic context and uh, you know help I'll motivate why my work is important. So I think so in 2018, uh, the former commander of the United States Special Operations Command, um, U.S. SOCOM, General Raymond Thomas, highlighted a disordered value system within special operations formations where individual and team considerations come before ethical standards. Not long after that, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019, Congress called for a description and assessment of special operations ethics and professionalism programs. And then Shortly after that, the current commander of U.S. SOCOM, General Richard Clark, ordered a comprehensive review of soft ethics and culture, which was published just last year. Uh, the team charged with conducting the review ultimately found that U.S. SOCOM culture was overly focused on force employment and mission accomplishment, and this enabled misconduct and unethical behavior to develop within the soft enterprise, special operations force enterprise. So outside of assessing and selecting the right people, something I've uh, argued for from a moral development standpoint, I can think of no better way to address a disordered value system and a culture focused on the wrong things uh, than to improve our military and specifically special operations, ethics, education, and training. Um, so regarding ethics education, at best it superficially, I think addresses the role that emotions play in our moral reasoning. Um, to some extent it takes the human dimension out of making a decision. And nor does military ethics education yet address the pernicious ways in which we can morally disengage from the situation. Moving to training, current ethics training is well, practically non-existent in my view, at least any training of value. I argue that we should begin by foregoing the online ethics courses, uh, which you might also be taking in ROTC, you, you've likely seen them, and tossing out the outsourced uh, pocket field guide with its abstracted moral quandaries case study approach. Uh, and that's because, well, after all, anyone can be ethical in a classroom and in the abstract. So I'll finish with here. So instead, my work supports a different, more practical approach where the classroom is just the starting gate. The real work I believe is done in the field with moral decision-making process uh, uh, developed serving as a developmental assessment and counseling tool. Um, and then you might ask, why am I working on moral reasoning and decision-making for ethics education and training in general? And this is back to the strategy. Um, so when a service member has a moral transgression overseas or at home even, and it makes the news, and I think they're 
it's not just because it makes the news, but these are the ones that you know draw the most attention. Uh, and it affects immediate operations, that's bad enough. Um, but add to that adversaries who capitalize on the moral failure by churning out propaganda, add to that uh, a possible loss of trust among our allies or an allied nation's diminished support for hosting our service members. And finally, add to that a father or mother who now steers their child away from the military service at a time when attracting qualified recruits is already difficult. You can see that service member moral reasoning gone awry, possibly enabled by a soft culture with disordered values, is not without strategic consequences. So that's my work at University of Michigan in some ways back to uh, national strategy. Well, thank you once again, Captain Norday, for your time today and for elaborating on your research and on your position as a civil affairs officer. I wanted to thank everyone else also for tuning into the podcast. For other podcast episodes, you can follow this podcast series on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Go Irish! If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash n-d-i-s-c forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag n-d underscore i-s-c. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.